Could you turn to Matthew chapter 6, please? Back to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at the verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6, the whole issue of forgiveness. Before we do, let us pray for God's assistance. Heavenly Father, when we come before you and understand you and your ways, we realize that we are like grass here today and gone tomorrow. We are like dust blown away by the wind. We're frail, we're fragile. Our understanding is extremely limited. And yet we know in our hearts, Father, how often pride creeps in. We have no reason for it. Yet still, we're addicted to it. Father, you know that in our flesh that we must battle with daily. No good thing dwells. And so even now I ask, on behalf of these people here, as we all sit here and struggle, struggle with ourselves and our flesh, that you would feed us from your word. Nurture our inward man. Strengthen us. Teach us your ways and help us to love you, trust in you and hope in you more because of today. Please, Father, help us to understand forgiveness. And out of the abundance of the forgiveness that you've showered upon us, may we extend it to others. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. When it comes to prayer, the issue that needs to be dealt with, probably before anything else can be dealt with, is the whole issue of forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, as we even prayed this morning, we know how it goes, and we've prayed it several times. We've prayed it over the years now a lot. And it's easy just to go through the motions. It's easy to, to say it. But something very significant is said here in verse 12. We're asking in this prayer, we ask, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. A powerful statement. And I want us to take the next little bit here and dive into what exactly does this mean? Because this is really central. Forgiveness needs to be a priority in our prayers. If we jump into praying and we don't understand this whole component of asking God to forgive us our debts then we're just we're mis- even we're misunderstanding prayer because here's the deal if we don't deal with our sins god will not hear us he will block his ears to us so then all of a sudden prayer is meaningless it's not important psalm 66 verse 18 puts it this way 
If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Did you hear that? If you or I regard iniquity in our hearts, if we take iniquity in and we want, to, we want to cherish it instead of dealing with it, if we want to hold on to it, if we don't want to get rid of it, if we don't want to confess it and repent of it, if we have sin in us, what does it say? Well, you should just keep on praying anyways because it's such a great exercise. The Lord will not hear us. Or as Proverbs 28, 9 says, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, now get this, even his prayer is an abomination. It's pretty strong, isn't it? One who turns away his ear from hearing the law basically says, I'm not interested, or turns away from God's instruction, or just decides to say it doesn't really matter. You know, okay, I can, I can pick and choose how I want to obey God. If a person deals lightly with God and deals lightly with sin, even his prayer is an abomination. And if that isn't enough, listen to how, what God says to his people in Isaiah 1, 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Now, when he's referring to spreading out your hands, he's referring to how, like, the Hebrews often prayed. They would often pray like this. He said, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. What does that mean? Your hands are guilty. They're defiled. They're filled with blood in the sense it's not just, he's not saying that every single one of you is a murderer, but every single one of you is filled with iniquity. Every single one of you is lifting up your hands to me and praying, and he's saying, you know, you're wasting your time. I'm not hearing you. We could also look at Zechariah 7, 12 through 14 and see the same thing. God closes his ears to us when there is sin in our lives and we're not willing to deal with it. You know, it's even astounding is 1 Peter 3, 7. Because even if a husband doesn't treat his wife well, we are warned there that it will hinder our prayers. It says, husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding so that your prayers be not hindered. I always kind of find that fascinating. Like, wow, so your prayers aren't hindered. Dwell with them with understanding. Be, be kind, be gracious, understand their frame, that they're, they're this weaker vessel. So even there, God is saying, do this so that your prayers aren't hindered. The only prayer at this particular time that God will hear when we're like this, if, if we have regarded iniquity in our hearts, if we are cherishing some little sin, if we are hiding things and don't really want to deal with everything, let's just say we deal with most things, but we have our little pet thing. The one prayer that we need to pray and that he will hear is the prayer of a contrite heart, the prayer of repentance, the prayer of confession, this prayer. 
this particular prayer, where we seek to God to ask him forgiveness for that particular sin. Calvin pointed out in his commentary that dealing with sin is so important that it ought to be first. He mentions that we don't even want to pray for daily bread or for God's kingdom to come until we know that no sin is hindering our prayers. As he said here, Jesus isn't saying this is the exact order in which everything must be prayed. He was simply saying pray like this because these are the essentials. Pray like this because these are the priorities. Now, understanding what the priorities are, if we were to put them in order, even as I agree with Calvin, the first thing we ought to put up front is probably the confession of sin. And that makes sense. Because if given the fact that God doesn't hear our prayers and he shuts his ears to us when we regard iniquity in our hearts, it would be pretty important to deal with any iniquity that might be in our hearts. Obviously, forgiveness needs to be a priority in our prayers. But before we do that, I think we understand forgiveness itself. Forgiveness needs to be understood and what it is we're asking for. So when we say forgive our debts, what are we saying as we forgive our debtors? We have to even, if we're going to pray it, we should have some knowledge of what this forgiveness is all about. And so when we ask God to forgive us our debts, we're asking him to take the sin that's between us, put it away, to cover it, to not hold it against us, and to promise that it won't be brought up again. It's to completely remove the sin. It's not to even just to set it off to the side. It's when God says, I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Well, it's just this eternalness. It doesn't end. I mean, how far is the east from the west? Start heading east and see if you ever get west. Never will. However, if God is to deal with the sin that has caused harm and dislocation to our relationship with him and deal with it in that that way, there must be atonement. Now, what is atonement? We don't talk much about atonement. We, we do talk a lot about forgiveness, but the old covenant was filled with this idea of atonement and realized without atonement, there can't be forgiveness. Forgiveness requires atonement. Atonement atones for that debt. When we ask God to forgive us our debts, this is what the atonement deals with. You know, because here's the deal. If God, have you ever thought about this? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Why Jesus? Why did he have to come? Why did he have to go to the cross? Why couldn't God just say, we go to God, God, I know that I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And God say, I forgive you. Have you ever thought about that? And even look at our transactions often. If I go to someone that I've sinned, I say, would you, would you forgive me for doing that? They say, I forgive you. Right? It's, and it's clean. Why, why doesn't God do that? That's actually because forgiveness requires atonement. It can't be offered otherwise. Now, we need to get into this word atonement because it's pretty, it's deep and it's fascinating and it's wonderful to understand if we're to understand what we're praying here in terms of forgiveness. The Hebrew word for atonement is kapur. And you guys um, have probably heard 
it used in the Day of Atonement. Many of you have probably heard people talk about Yom Kippur. That's the day, Yom's day, Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So this word Kippur is like, it's a fascinating word. Because um, in Scripture, it's used in places that give us a fuller understanding, but it's outside the context of forgiveness. For example, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, where God is instructing Noah on how to build the ark, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Do you realize the word there, translated cover it, is kapur. So here we have, he says, go and basically, uh, you, you know, that would be the same word we translate atonement, make atonement in a sense. Because what is atonement? Atonement has this idea of covering it. Cover it outside and in with this pitch. Kapur it. So here we have this idea, this it comes into the word when it's translating of covering over, making it um, no longer an issue. So this, but the same word is translated um, in other portions of Scripture as well. And actually, um, in a different sense, it gives another idea or nuance to this idea of, of uh, this Hebrew word that we translate atonement. In Genesis 32, 19 through 21, Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau. And it's been 14 years since he's been separated. And we all know the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob cunningly deceives his father and gets the blessing. He's also, he also finangled and worked it out, so he actually got the birthright from Esau as well. So Jacob is a pretty cunning fella. He, he comes up with some shrewd ways of dealing with his brother, and so he knows his brother wanted to kill him. His brother was not too happy with him. So what happens here in Genesis 32, 19 through 21, after this time, he's going to go meet Esau. It's been quite a while. And so he does something. He wants to make sure that things are kind of all right between the two of them. And this is what he says. Behold, your servant Jacob, he sends a servant off, and he tells a servant, he says, say this. Behold, your servant Jacob is behind you. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So what is he doing? Jacob's sending off this massive gift, huge gift. The gift was probably worth, it would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was like, wow, gift. I want you to have this. That word in there, appease him. It's translated in in this particular one, appease him. He sends the gift so that it will appease him. And guess what? That appease him is kapur again, that Hebrew word. That same word translated atonement. And what it does, it takes away all the fury. It takes away all the anger. Okay, he's relieved. He actually sees the gift, can't believe the gift, and is overwhelmed by the gift. It's such an act of love that now his heart gets turned away from, from say, wrath or anger now to kindness and benevolence. So that's what Jacob's thinking. Perhaps this will provide, in a sense, atonement for what's taken place and cause him to now turn in my favor. And it actually, it works. Esau does turn in his favor. So here's the deal. 
Most of the time this word is used in Scripture is in reference to what the sacrifice does in relationship to God. It makes atonement. Even the mercy seat is actually described as this, um, this, this covering, this atonement as well. God, when God is going to deal with us, he has to, sin needs to be made, needs to be atoned for. If he doesn't just say, I forgive you, the sin needs to be covered and the sin needs to be appeased. It needs to be taken care of. Just as if, if we're in a situation where somebody sinned against us and took, you know, everything we had, say, and left us with nothing. If they come to us, Biblically speaking, the sin needs to be atoned for, and that allows for forgiveness. Now, how would that happen? Well, it needs to be paid for. It needs to be covered over. So if everybody, if they gave everything they took back to us and then heaped on top of that a great big gift to take away any ill will or any bad feelings or anything that would be between us so that everything is, is, re, is repaired, so to speak, it's good now. So that there's no animosity, there's no thinking of, well, I remember what you did a few years ago and how you took everything I had, but you came to me and then all you did is simply ask for forgiveness. Well, that still leaves a massive wound in place, a massive debt there. But to come and not only repay it all, but then heap a massive gift on top. That gift on top makes this atonement. It appeases. It covers up. It takes it away. And not only now do you feel resentment, you actually have a a sense of, wow, everything's good and restored. and, And there's no animosity whatsoever between us. Now, here's the deal. In our particular case, when we're praying for forgiveness, God just doesn't go from heaven, yeah, no problem. There needs to be atonement. It needs to be covered up. It needs to be paid for. It needs to be repaired. And this is what Jesus does. God sent his only begotten son to provide this atonement, to make this payment to make actually forgiveness possible. This is what allows God to say to you, I forgive you completely. Not a problem at all. It says in Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, God shall see and be satisfied. Who's that referring to? We know in Isaiah 53, this is talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, who would come. And out of the anguish of his soul, it says, out of the pouring out of his soul, this deep anguish that, that Jesus faces on the cross, it, what does it say here? Out of the anguish of the soul, of Jesus' soul, God shall see it and be satisfied. There's that whole idea of he makes atonement. It's now covered over. The debt is paid. I'm fully satisfied. God looks at what his son did to pay for our sins. And you know what? He is more than satisfied. It is a gift of infinite value. This gift of infinite value was offered to pay for our sins. It's almost as if your debt was a million. Jesus come and pays the million and throws on a billion. 
It is more than satisfied. This is why he didn't just barely pay for our sins. He makes an atonement so that now God will say, I gladly forgive you. That's how great of a payment it was. There is not a stitch of anger, animosity, resentment, discord whatsoever between us and God once we come to God in Christ Jesus. And this is why we can have complete and total forgiveness. God will never bring the issue up again. He would never hold it against us in in any way because Jesus has paid the price. He's overpaid. Could you imagine thinking he wants more? Not a chance. Could he want more for our sins than the death of his son? Eternally begotten son? That's crazy. This is what we have to understand. When we pray to God that he would forgive us our debts, we're asking him to forgive us on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ, the payment of his son. It's not a blank forgiveness like, hey, I know that I've stole everything you have. I owe you $10 trillion, but I'm just saying, hey, you know what? Could you just forgive me? God says gladly, but he says gladly because this comes as a result of the payment given in his son. And yet we have in the text here, it says, forgive us our debts. Do you you ever find that as kind of a little bit of a strange way of putting it? Debts? Forgive us our debts. Debts are are another way of saying sins, but we're we're not usually used to referring to it that way. The Greek word being used here for debts is a word which means that which is justly or legally due. It's what is due, justly, legally. This is what is owed. In Luke, the word is, is used in the Lord, Lord's Prayer. If we were to turn over to Luke, you would see that it says, forgive us our trans, trespasses or transgressions. It doesn't use the word debt. However, the idea is the exact same. One speaks of what we owe as a result of the sin, debt. The other speaks of the sin itself, the actual transgression. So what is the debt we owe? Forgive us of our debts. We're not asking him, forgive us for the debts we owe one another in the course of business. We're asking him to forgive us our debts, and these debts are what? What is the debt we owe? Well, the debt we owe for sin is what? Death. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. So what do you owe? What do you and I owe? What comes as a result of sin? Death. Death is the payment. That's what what happens as a result. Death comes. Now death has to be taken care of. And as we've said so many times, it's not just you fall over and die and go into the grave. The death referred to in the scriptures, especially in reference to God, is is a separation. We're thrown, cast out of the garden. We're we're torn away from the God who brings who brought, we are in communion with and brought meaning and life and sustenance and all that we needed to make life glorious and good and liberating was found in our communion and union to God. And now we've been cast away, torn away, separated from him. Now, obviously, this poses a problem because what we need is life. We need that life restored. Yet all we have is what? Death. 
We're in a state of death. This is the most impossible situation because it requires the absolute grace of God. We don't have one penny to step forward with. We've got nothing. We're bankrupt. All we have is death. We can't offer death. That's, that's the penalty. This is the most impossible sit- situation that requires the most amazing grace. So if we are to come back to life with God, if the debt is to be paid, someone has to pay it. And as we already looked at, we know Jesus paid that debt. We are like the penniless man who is foreclosed, his car is taken away, his wages garnished, and 15 collectors are after him for millions. We have nothing. All we can do is hope in his grace. That's it. God has got to act. God has got to do something. So when we ask God to forgive us our debts, we're asking him to forgive us that debt that we can't pay. Because the wages for sin is death. The debt we owe, we can't pay. We're separated from God. He must act. He must do something on our, on our behalf. And here's, here's the thing. God, we know he's acted on our behalf. He has, he's given his only begotten son. But then Jesus does something interesting in this text. He says, so we're to ask God to forgive us of our debts... And then he adds this amazing phrase after that. As we uh, have also, also have forgiven our debtors. Do you find that interesting? So he's he's teaching us, hey, when you pray, pray, ask forgiveness for your debts. And by the way, throw on the backside of that, that that he would forgive you just as you forgive others. Whoa. Sounds a little strange. Isn't it? Especially... You know, after talking about what is required in the nature of forgiveness. Jesus even adds something to this prayer that seems contrary to the gospel itself. Look down at verse 14 and 15. Just below that, after this, he's teaching him to pray this. He says this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. I thought it was all about grace. Didn't you? Does that sound like grace to you? He puts a condition on it. He says, says, yeah, he'll forgive you, but he'll only forgive you if you forgive others. And if you don't forgive others, he's not going to forgive you. So there it is. So we're to pray that you're to forgive us as we treat or forgive others. What's going on here? Jesus knows something. Jesus has a way with putting things. Jesus can actually get to the heart of issues. Jesus in no way is contradicting what he's talking about later on in Scripture in reference to grace and God freely forgiving us and all that. What he's doing is he's just going to get at the, the issue of whether or not we really get it or understand it. That's what he's doing here. He's getting at us. Because we like to trick and deceive ourselves. We like to play games in in regard to this. We love forgiveness, but we don't always love to give forgiveness. 
We all, we all know that we're very quick to keep debts over top people, to hold grudges of others, to remind people what they have done against us. Do you find it, you know, in our flesh, we don't like forgiveness. However, Jesus, Jesus knows something, that him who's received grace delights to give grace. So he knows that there's no problem here for those who've truly received it. This just trips up those who don't understand what they have, who don't understand what the Father's given. This really, this really gets those people who, who just love to receive forgiveness and like the idea of that, but they don't understand that those who've received it are those who willingly and joyfully give it. So when Jesus asks us to pray like this, it's brilliant. Because it exposes our hearts like nothing else. Because if we don't extend grace, what does that tell you? You haven't even received grace. You don't even get you. You don't even understand your own heart. You don't understand the debt, the size of debt the Father forgave you of. And do you know what the church is filled with? The church is filled with people who hold on to things. One of the greatest, I've read several books on this, one of the greatest problems within the church uh, is people not being willing to forgive one another. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she did to me? Do you know what you did to God? Do you? You guys remember what was read for us this morning, that parable? You remember Jesus in Matthew 18, he's telling Peter, I tell you, if your brother sins against you, you're to forgive him every time. And, and Peter kind of, he's, he's having troubles. So should we forgive him up to seven times? It's pretty good, right? Let's up the ante. Peter probably thinking, pretty holy, seven times. Peter, I tell you, you know, 70 times seven. <laughs> what? Let me tell you a little story. There was a servant, and he owed this king 10,000 talents, over a year's worth of wages, this massive amount of money, massive, that he could not repay in the slightest. And what does the king do? The king forgives him his debt. And then what happens to the servant? This servant also has servants. And this um, servant of the servant only owes that guy a denarii, basically a day's wages. So what does he do? Does he act out of the grace extended to him? No. He grabs the servant. You worthless worm, I can't believe it. You give me every stinking penny. And, And he exacts out of him everything owed to him. Demands this justice. And what does the king do when he finds out about this? You wicked servant. After all that I've forgiven you, look at what I've done for you. And you you go and treat like this, you do not get it. You don't understand it. You self-righteous, self-inflated person. You know what I think we're like 
as Christians so often when we hold grudges against people, we are so stinking self-righteous. We're so full of ourselves. We make so little of the work of Christ. We make so little of our own sins. We're always justifying ourselves, always making ourselves look like the person in the right. And it's that other person, right? They're the ones in the wrong. That's what we love to do. We love to justify ourselves and we love to condemn others because then we can be righteous. But we really have to understand the size of our debt toward God. It's insurmountable. How many times have you sinned against him? How many times did you do it this morning? How many times last week, last month, last year? How many many years have you lived? How much have you sinned against God? I tell you, people, it's sickening. It's beyond sickening. Truckload fulls. More than you could ever imagine. You've been unfaithful. You've disobeyed. You've served other gods. You've coveted your neighbor's stuff. You've lied. You've twisted the truth. You're self-centered and proud. We could go on all day long. People, you people have sinned. And you know what? When you go to God, he says, oh, Father, forgive me. You know what he'll say to you? I forgive you. I gladly forgive you. Now, when we, people who understand, people who are forgiven much, what did Jesus say? They love much. (laughs) They'll say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Do you realize what that person did to you? Have you ever heard these news reports of someone coming in and killing their family? Then you hear this person extending forgiveness to that person. You'll sometimes hear that. The world falls off their seats when they hear that. Is that person like psychotic? They not get it? It's because they have never received that kind of love, that kind of grace before. The people who get their sin and know how great God, greatly God has forgiven them, know how God has loved them by giving his only begotten son to die for them, to make the payment and atone for their sins. When you understand yourself and you understand how God's loved you in Christ Jesus, that person who's been forgiven much just goes around and loves much. Now, if your love is little, if you've got we love for other people and you're holding grudges and offenses, can you think of one person that you're holding out on? A father, a mother, a friend, a brother, a sister. Can you think of one? If you can think of somebody that you're holding out on, you've got business to do before you ever get to praying. Before you ever get to the place where you think your father is hearing you, you've got to understand you're self-righteous. You've made way too much of yourself. Way too little of Christ in what he's done for you. Way too much of the other person's sin. Is forgiveness your joy? Or you're like, okay, whatever. I have to. If we've got a stinking attitude about forgiving people, if we're not quick to forgive, 
We're not getting it. You are not getting your sin. You're not getting what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Because you start to get that, and I tell you what, you are a forgiving person. You start to see how much you've been forgiven, and you start to love much. Yeah, but this person's done it 40 times. You did it 8,000 times. And that always gets perspective. We forget the love of God. We forget the kindness of God. We forget that our Father forgave us our debts. Or we minimize the debt. We make light of it. This is why this should, this should be a joy for us to say, Our Father, for, forgive us for our debts as we forgive our debtors. Oh, I forgive them. Forgive. For, this is the greatest thing we could pray because when we're praying this, it always reminds us of the deceptiveness of our own hearts, does it not? If I'm praying daily, Father, I want you to forgive me just as I forgive all those people out there. I was like, whoa, wait a second. Let me pull, let me back off that one a little bit. Let me just, let me examine how am I do? Have I really forgiven these people? What does it say about me? What does it say about my heart? What does it say about my understanding of my own sin, the grace that God has given me? We need to forgive as we have been forgiven. People, pray like this. Make this a priority, and actually the first thing we do in our prayer, let's make sure that our hearts are right before God. Don't expect God to hear you for anything. If you regard iniquity in your, in your heart, the Lord will not hear you. Maybe it's the very reason why none of your prayers are answered. Why does it seem like my prayer life, it's like ding, 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 nothing's getting through. Maybe it's because that's the state of your own heart. So what do we need to do? We need to pray like this because this prayer gets right at our hearts and teaches us to understand the forgiveness we've received in Christ and allows us to extend that forgiveness to anybody who's ever wronged us in this world joyfully. When this becomes a staple of our prayer, when this becomes a center of our prayer, the priority of our prayer, the beginnings of our prayer, look out. You are going to be a different kind of prayer because God is going to begin to open up heaven with his blessings. Because one of the greatest hindrances to all of our prayers, again, is the harboring of iniquity in our hearts, sin undealt with. So let us pray like this and become different people because of it. Amen. Father, you know every heart in this room right now And I ask, O Lord God, that you, by your spirit, would convict each and every person who is regarding iniquity, who is harboring resentment, 
who is holding grudges, who is holding on to the things that defile. And oh God, I beg of you that you would show grace and mercy and by your spirit convict them that they would see and understand their own sins and how you so willingly forgive them and then so quickly and joyfully forgive others. Father, have mercy on us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen.